Uh, well, it's so good to see you all. And uh, today, as I speak, I guess I am particularly aware uh, that I stand here as a man and as a married man. And uh, as I look out on all of you, um, obviously, uh, not all of you are men. Um, and uh, obviously, there are lots of marrieds, but there are also lots of people who are unmarried as well. And today, as we think about what does God think about relationships, I'm aware that there are a whole uh, plethora of different situations amongst us. Uh, there'll be amongst us those who uh, currently know real joy in a romantic relationship, be that a dating relationship or marriage. Uh, there'll be those of us, too, uh, who know real struggle, real challenge, real difficulty in a current romantic relationship, whether dating or marriage. Uh, there will be those uh, who are homosexual or bisexual, as well as those who are heterosexual. Uh, there will be those who've been deeply hurt by a past relationship, for some uh, traumatically so. There'll be people here who are the victims of sexual violence at some point in the past. Uh, there'll be those who are separated or divorced or widowed. And there'll be some of us who are lonely. We're just longing for friendship, particularly after all the challenges of the pandemic. So amongst us, there are a whole plethora of relational situations, and all of us equally valued and cherished by God, and to be equally valued and cherished by each other. And so what I'm aiming to try and do in the next 20 minutes or so uh, is to look at God's Word and to answer particularly this question, what does God think about relationships? What does God think about relationships, particularly romantic relationships? And as I do that, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to teach what God's Word seems to be saying on this. I'm trying, as it were, to sit under the authority of God's Word and let God's Word judge me rather than me sitting over God's Word and judging it and saying, this is what I think, as though I think I know better than God, which clearly I don't. Now, if you were here over the last couple of weeks, um, you will remember that I, I've said that the first chapters of Genesis... Uh, they focus not so much on chronological order, but on creation order. So those, these first chapters of Genesis, we've been looking at them, they've been showing us how God has set up this world, how he set up this world in terms of the way our relationships work, recognizing that God himself, God, he is a relational God. And we've looked at, if you remember last week, if you were here, we looked at what does it mean, uh, we're told as humans we are made in the image of God. And we've looked at what does that mean last, uh, last Sunday in terms of the way our different relationships, four different relationships work. Our relationship up to God, our relationship down to the world, our relationship across to others, and our relationship in with ourselves. And in a sense, what we're going to do today is to focus on two of those relationships, our relationship up to God and our relationship across to other people. Now, uh, whether I am the right person to speak on the whole subject of romantic relationships, that is deeply questionable. Uh, I mean, first of all, take how I started going out with Susanna, who I've been married to for the last uh, 20 years. Um, it was the year, um, summer, it was the summer of the year um, 2000. So it was the millennium year. Uh, we were both 23. Uh, she was living here in Clapham. I was living just up in Oval. And I decided to invite her on a romantic picnic, okay? I chose the highly, highly romantic location 
of Vauxhall Park, okay? It's as romantic as it gets. Um, and so what I did, I went to Sainsbury's or wherever it was, and I bought the food and the drink, and I came back to my home uh, to realize that I didn't actually have a picnic basket. So I decided, in my wisdom, uh, to use my laundry basket. Uh, and uh, I took out the smelly socks and the smelly boxer shorts and put in all the food into the laundry basket. Susanna comes to my flat, rings the bell, and off we go. You can picture the scene, trotting off to Vauxhall Park, me carrying my laundry basket. Uh, and uh, we got there, laid the rug out, the, you know, the, the food out, and uh, got out the baguette and the fine smoked ham uh, to find that Susanna hates ham. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll get out the strawberries. I got out the strawberries to discover that they were moldy. Um, so it wasn't going particularly well. We finished eating, and I was sort of, I was got to the point where I was like, right, now is the time when I want to ask, you know, the, the question, will you be my girlfriend? Will you, can we start going out? Uh, but I was so, so nervous that I desperately needed a pee. Um, so I, I shot off to the bushes uh, in Vauxhall Park and had a quick pee and a pray, um, and then came back and renewally uh, encouraged to uh, ask her out. And, uh, and I did that, and um, she said yes, and uh, we kissed and we prayed. Now, Susanna says we prayed first, and then we kissed. I reckon we kissed, and then we prayed. The, the jury's still out on that one. But anyway, it, it, that happened. We carried on chatting. We got to the end of the evening, time to, to head to our home to our respective flats, and so packed everything up and headed out of Vauxhall Park to discover that we'd been locked in. The gates of Vauxhall Park were shut. So uh, Susanna, young gazelle that she was, I mean is, um, uh, she um, climbed the gates, uh, got on top of the gates, and jumped over onto the other side onto the pavement. All was fine. I followed her, I climbed the gates, got to the top of the gates, and got stuck. Um, and Susanna had to climb back up uh, to rescue me. So if you've ever seen Notting Hill, uh, you may remember Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts. It was a bit like that, but in reverse. We were trying to get out of the garden. They were trying to get in. So um, you can hear from that that I am not a huge success when it comes to romance uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, there were times uh, when I was uh, too intimate uh, with some of my romantic relationships, both before I became a Christian age 17 and after I became a Christian and before I met Susanna. Susanna and I, uh, we have been married for 20 years, and we are not some sort of picture-perfect, ideal Christian couple who've never, ever had an argument. Uh, we have argued too much, sometimes too heatedly. So I stand before you here as someone who has made many, many mistakes in the area of romantic relationships. But I also stand here as somebody who knows the amazing wonder, the amazing wonder of complete forgiveness because Jesus Christ has paid the price of all my sin. And that is a forgiveness that isn't an excuse to carry on sinning, but it is a forgiveness that offers us, offers me, offers you a fresh start. And there may be some people sitting here this morning and you're saying, that is exactly what I need. I need a fresh start. And that is what Jesus Christ offers. So let's look at God's word, shall we? We're going to look at Genesis 2. What do we learn from Genesis 2? And again, it was page 4 if you want to look on the Bibles, or you might have it on your phone. Well, we've seen over the last week, as we've gone through Genesis 1, we have seen uh, this refrain that keeps on happening, saying it was good. Everything is good in creation. We hear again and again, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. That is the repeated refrain. And yet suddenly, in this perfect Garden of Eden setting, suddenly we hear that something was not good. How is that the case? In the perfect Garden of Eden, suddenly God declares that something was not good. Have a look at verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper 
suitable for him. You see, the first thing that we learn, that we as human beings, we learn we are social beings. Now, I know I've sometimes got this wrong in the past. I've said, probably from the front, I've said something like this. I've said, if we're in a right relationship with God, then that is ultimately all we need. Everything will be okay. But that isn't true. Here we discover God deliberately made Adam to need somebody apart from God. You know, isn't that so non-egocentric of God? He is saying that we need to be in a relationship across with other people as well as in a relationship up to God. So the diagram that's going to come back on the screen, that is how it should be. That is how it should be. But the danger is that we cut off from others. We cut off from others when the reality is that we have been made social beings. We've been made social beings. So very simply, here is the action for every single one of us. Don't cut off from others. Don't cut off from others. Now, verse 18, verse 18 is about more than just sort of finding a romantic partner. It is about the need we all have for friendship, for community, for support. So this is more than just romantic relationships in view, but it's certainly not less than romantic relationships in view, that desire for a significant one other. And that is why it is so right that there should be amongst us huge compassion for those people who feel the real ache of singleness. The real pain of not being married. The Bible doesn't turn its back on singleness. It understands that ache. And, and we as individuals and we as a church, we need to recognize and support people who are understandably feeling that ache. Too often, I think, churches can be so focused on the family, on the marrieds, on the singles, that those who, uh, sorry, the marrieds and the children, that those who are single feel excluded and on the margins. And that shouldn't be the case. And I want to apologize where I have sometimes got that wrong here at HTC. But as well as recognizing the pain of singleness, let's also recognize the positives of singleness too. Singleness, the Bible says, it's not just some sort of premarital state or postmarital state. It is not second best. Rather, according to 1 Corinthians 7, it is the relational status that means you are most able to live uh, your life in undivided devotion to the Lord and do the things for God that those of us who are married are never going to be able to do. Indeed, both Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul were both single. So don't cut off from others. That is the message because you and I, we are social beings. Don't cut off from others. If you don't have deep, good Christian friendships, can I encourage you to look to be doing all you can to develop and grow those, particularly after the last 18 months. We all know the challenges of the last 18 months where so much of our friendships, our relationships conducted over Zoom, we need to recognize the need for real, authentic, deep Christian friendship. And that is one of the key purposes why we have connect groups here at HTC. So that people, all of us, can be in groups of 10, 20 people who meet midweek. And one of the key reasons for meeting as a connect group is to build that Christian friendship with one another. So if you're not in a connect group, can I encourage you, please, even today, would you join one? So that's the first thing. We are social beings. Here's the second thing. We are sexual beings. We're sexual beings. The very first words of a human that are recorded are the words of Adam as he sets his eyes on Eve. And this is what he says, verse 23. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And you'll see there, it's written with all that indentation because it's poetry, it's song. The Hebrew there rhymes. It's like Adam looks at Eve and he declares at last, this is what I've been longing for all my life. Admittedly, quite a short life at that point, but you get the point. And then look what happens next. Verse 24. This is, I think, absolutely fascinating. Look at verse 24. It continues. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, that verse is super interesting. Just have a look at it, because, of course, Adam didn't have a father or mother, did he? He didn't have a father or mother. But the writer of Genesis puts this verse in the Bible to teach us all today what we need to learn. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that Genesis 2, verse 24, it is the blueprint verse for all the teaching in the Bible on sex and marriage. It is quoted, this verse, it's quoted in the New Testament by Jesus in Matthew 19, in Mark chapter 10. It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And what does the verse tell us? Well, it tells us that the order, the order is for man and woman to be united as husband and wife, and then they become one flesh. They have sex. Sex is to be in the context of marriage. In fact, you know, intimacy... Intimacy always goes with commitment in the Bible. Just have a think for a moment. Just have a think. How would Jesus feel if you prayed this prayer to Jesus? If you prayed to Jesus, Jesus, I want to know intimacy with you. Jesus, I want you inside me by your spirit. Jesus, I want you to lead me. I want you to love me. But Jesus, I don't want to be committed to you. Jesus, I want to make my own decisions most of the time. Jesus, I really can't be doing with being committed to you for all my life. I mean, the whole of life of you as Lord, that's a bit much, Jesus. I mean, that would be an offensive prayer to pray to Jesus, wouldn't it? But if that is how it goes in our relationship with God, that intimacy and commitment are connected, why would it be any different with someone else? Sex, intimacy, is to be in the context of marriage commitment. And just to to very briefly touch on discussions about same-sex marriage, let me say three things. Firstly, please, on all discussions surrounding homosexuality, let's remember what we saw last week, that every single person is created in the image of God. Every single person is to be valued. Someone who is heterosexual in orientation is not more godly than someone who is homosexual in orientation. Some of the most godly people that I know and respect are people who are same-sex attracted. So the question up for debate is not to do with homosexual preference, homosexual orientation, if you like, but rather the question is about homosexual practice. Specifically, how should gay Christians express their sexuality? Is it by remaining celibate, which would be the traditional Christian teaching, or is homosexual sex, is it a good thing in faithful same-sex marriage? That is the question. Second thing to say, as I look at it, As I look at it, Jesus defines marriage as being between one man and one woman. If you look up on the screen, it's going to come Matthew uh, chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. This is where Jesus is quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. So if you look there, what does Jesus do? He joins our verse, uh, Genesis 2, verse 24. You'll see coming up the blue underlining. That is our blueprint verse, Genesis 2, uh, verse 24. And... uh, 
he joins that verse. If we can have the blue underlining, that'd be amazing. Thank you. So that verse there, for this reason, a man will, that's Genesis 2, verse 24. Jesus is quoting that. And what he does is he joins it with another verse in Genesis that we looked at last week, Genesis 1, verse 27, the red underlining, where he says, God made them male and female. So as we have that, verse, that slide up there, just look at what he's doing there. Jesus is joining the affirmation of humanity as male and female, Genesis 1, 27, with the affirmation of exclusive uniting through sex in marriage in Genesis 2, 24. And he didn't need to add that bit in Genesis 1, 27 about God created the male and female. He didn't need to add that unless he thinks that marriage is between one man and one woman. So Jesus says sex is to be in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Third thing to say. I'm aware that what I've just said in that second point is controversial, and it has big implications for some. And so really all I'm asking is that each one of us, before God, before God, we prayerfully look at what the Bible says on this subject and then how it applies today. If it's helpful, in the sermon notes that you can get through the QR code is a link to a book by Ed Shaw called The Plausibility Problem. It's a book that's recommended by the Church of England. They're going through this living in love and faith stuff, and it's one of the books that is recommended for that. You can have a look at that book. Another thing that if you go through that link on the QR code is a link to a sermon I once did on this subject here at HDC a few years ago. So do have a look at those if that would be helpful. But the bottom line is this. Whatever view you come to, even if your view is different than mine, whatever each of our sexual orientation is, please hear that every single person is equally valued and every person is totally welcome here at HTC. This is a church for everyone because Jesus Christ is for everyone. But here's the danger. This is the danger for us all. This is the danger for every single one of us here. Uh, whatever our relational status, whoever we are, the danger is for us that we cut God out of how we do our relationships. So if point one was don't cut off from others, point two is don't cut off from God. Don't cut off from God. Don't be in relationships, don't do our relationships where you are ignoring what does God think about them. Now, of course, I am not saying that it is easy to keep sex for within marriage. I'm not saying there is not forgiveness when we muck up. But please, what we need to look to do as followers of Jesus is don't cut God out. Don't cut him out. We need to look to do God's will when it comes to the place for sex. We need to look to do God's will when it comes to how do we go about dating. We need to look to do God's will when it comes to faithfulness in marriage. And that is going to mean sacrifice. It's going to mean us fleeing temptation, not flirting with temptation. And in all sorts of areas, not cohabiting, not watching porn, wisdom about holidays, all sorts of different things. The list could go on and on and on. But, you know, undergirding our thinking in this area, undergirding it all, I think is this question. What do we think about God? What do we think about God? Do we think that God is a killjoy? Do we think he's a killjoy who's out to spoil our fun in the area of relationships? Is that our view of God? Or do we think that God is our heavenly father who wants what's best for us, who has created us, and has created the means and the guidelines of how we can best flourish as humans? What do we think of God? Killjoy or heavenly father? 
And I've got to say for me, if I was trying to sort of describe the first 10 years of my life as a Christian, the biggest thing that I came to the realization of over those first 10 years as a Christian was that God was not a killjoy in this area. He wasn't out to spoil my fun, but that he was a heavenly father who wanted what was best for me in the area of relationships as in every single area. And I want to ask each one of us, which do you think? Do you think God's a killjoy or do you think he's your heavenly father? Will you trust him that he is your heavenly father who wants what is best for you? So, what have we seen so far? Uh, We are social beings. We are sexual beings. And then finally, we are spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings. If you look at verse 25 coming up on the screen, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So there they are. They're in perfect relationship with each other and they're in perfect relationship with God. They felt no shame. But here I think is the greatest problem probably for most of us. Our greatest problem is not so much cutting off others. Our greatest problem is not actually even so much cutting off God. But I think our greatest problem is this is what we do. We swap God and others. If you think of that picture, we swap God and others. And we let one particular other person take the ultimate position in our life that is only meant for God. And so the message for us is don't swap others and God. Don't swap others and God. It was G.K. Chesterton who famously said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And what he's saying there is he's saying that hidden underneath our sexual hunger is a deep spiritual hunger that we all have, even if we don't realize it, because we're all looking for perfect love, for complete intimacy, for unconditional acceptance, but not through a prostitute nor through a spouse can any human ever perfectly fulfill all those needs. And so what happens when we swap God and others? What what happens when we worship and idolize a particular person? Or we worship and idolize having sex? Or we worship and idolize the concept of marriage? What happens if we put those things as the ultimate thing rather than God? What happens? Well, first of all, if we're single, if we're single, I think two things happen. Firstly, we become far too choosy as we evaluate, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but as we evaluate potential spousal prospects, okay, we become far too choosy. Because we have this idealized view of what a perfect spouse should be. You know, we're, we're looking to get perfect love, unconditional acceptance, uh, a complete intimacy, honk-stonking beauty. We're looking to get it all from this one person, our perfect spouse. Because we've put our future spouse in the place of God. You know, the reality is we're always going to marry somebody with whom we're going to have disagreements. Because it is one sinner married to another sinner. For Susanna and me, I reckon in in my first year of marriage, it was the year in my life when I most learned quite how selfish I am. And actually, even now, I learn again and again how incredibly selfish I am because of our marriage and because we're married together. And then I think the second thing, um, as can often happen for single people, if we swap God and others, if we swap God and others, what happens? The second thing is we fail to enjoy life as a single person. Because we think that marriage will save us, that this future spouse will save us from all the struggles of being single. 
Now, those feelings of loneliness, they're real, they're understandable, as I've already said. But please, if you are single, please don't be deluded into thinking that getting married will solve it all, because it won't. The loneliest people in life are not those who are single. The loneliest people in life are those who are in unhappy marriages. Jesus Christ is our saviour, not marriage. And then how about if we're married? If we're married and we swap God and our spouse, swap those positions and our spouse becomes the ultimate thing, what happens then? Well, what happens then is we then can't handle the frustrations of marriage. And I know I've been guilty of this, placing completely unreasonable demands on Susanna because I'm wanting Susanna to be my saviour. You know, if she isn't perfect, I, I crumble and get cross. If she doesn't constantly affirm me, I get sulky. You know, why isn't she providing me with perfect love, with complete intimacy, with unconditional acceptance that I desire? Why isn't she doing that? Duh, to be stupid. Why not? She's not God. You know, she's pretty amazing, but she's not God. You know, the solution to this problem that we all face in one way or another of swapping others and God, the solution to that problem is not loving other people less. That's not the solution. The solution is loving God more. And the Bible says that God is our ultimate spouse. That all of us, we have committed spiritual adultery. We've run away from our spouse, God, and we've run after someone else. And what did God do? Well, God, he tried to woo us back. In Christ, he went to his death on the cross to woo our spiritual adulterers back. And as I close, I'd love you just to look at our blueprint verse, Genesis 2, 24, one more time, but how it's quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Look at what Paul writes. He says, for this reason, here's the verse, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Then he says this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See what he's saying there as you look at that verse. He's saying, ultimately, I'm not talking about husband and wife. I'm talking about Christ and his bride, the church, us. You see, the second most important decision of my life was on the 21st of July, 2001, when I said, I will, to Susanna. Not everybody gets the opportunity to say, I will, in marriage. But the most important decision of my life, of your life, of any single person in this world's life, the most important decision is saying, I will, to Jesus. And every single person gets that opportunity. The Bible, it starts with a wedding day in Genesis 2, as we've been looking at. And it ends with a wedding day in Revelation 19, a wedding day between Jesus and us, between Christ and the church. You see, Jesus Christ, he is our ultimate spouse. Jesus Christ, he is the only one that can truly fulfill us. And on that final wedding day, we can fall into his arms, knowing that that is the one wedding day that can make everything all right. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray.